from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, February 7th. Today, a political crisis in Virginia. The message behind Trump's MS-13 crackdown and the origin story of new emoji. I reflected with my family and classmates from the time and affirmed my conclusion that I am not the person in that photo. It is all completely political. It's a complete smear. Uh, The manipulation is completely obvious. Virginia politicians are in denial mode. The reason it's uncorroborated is because it's not true. But I believe then and now that I am not either of the people in that photo. Right now, all three of the state's top elected officials are deep in scandals, starting with Governor Ralph Northam, down to Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, and then Attorney General Mark Herring. And all three are Democrats. As for the scandals, they involve a racist photograph, incidents of blackface, and in the case of Fairfax, an accusation of sexual assault. You could say this whole controversy started over comments about abortion that Ralph Northam and a Democratic lawmaker had made. That brought a lot of national attention to Virginia. Fennett Nearapil covered Ralph Northam back when he was campaigning for governor in 2017. And Fennett says that Northam's recent statements got a lot of conservatives angry and looking for a way to take a political stab at him. He was talking about abortions in the instance where a fetus is non-viable, and it was widely uh, misconstrued as Ralph Northam calling for the abortions of children that are born healthy. So there was a lot of national scrutiny on Ralph Northam and a lot of criticism from Republicans nationally and locally. And then sources have told us that uh, Big League Politics, which is a conservative website, was able to get a copy of a yearbook where uh, there's a photo of blackface in a KKK costume on Ralph Northam's yearbook page. It was a medical school yearbook from 1984. And Fennett says that the reason that big league politics was able to obtain it was because of the anger around Northam and his abortion comments. That all happened last week. The story appeared on the website on Friday afternoon. Several hours later, Ralph Northam releases a statement, a short statement, apologizing for the photo, apologizing for appearing in the photo. And that created an awkward situation. It was like, wait, was he the guy in the blackface or the guy dressed up like a KKK member? And which one is worse in that situation? Indeed. And then the next morning, Ralph Northam gave a press conference, and then he said that he actually didn't believe he was in the photo at all. And that raised a question of why would you admit to being in a photo if you weren't in the photo? But then to make matters even more complicated, Ralph Northam admitted that, okay, I don't think I was in blackface that time, but there was another time where I was in blackface, and he acknowledged that he put on shoe polish on his face when he dressed up like Michael Jackson for a dance competition in the mid-1980s. And what I think makes this whole thing even more surprising is the fact that, like, race was an issue in his campaign, that in many ways Northam benefited from the fact that his opponent, his Republican opponent, was accused of releasing racist campaign ads. Right. And also 
that campaign happened the same year as Charlottesville, when white supremacists marched on Charlottesville and the president said there were very fine people on both sides. This happened during the Virginia governor's race, and race really became a key topic at that point. And probably benefited Democrats at that time. In the election results, 90 percent of African-Americans voted for Ralph Northam. He also had strong support from Latino and Asian voters as well. And voters and organizations devoted to organizing uh, voters of color were outraged by what they saw as racial uh, attacks from the Republicans throughout that year. So all of this is looking very bad for Northam. And then... And obviously the next person in line, if he were to resign, which many people were pressuring him to do, would be the lieutenant governor, who is also in trouble right now. Virginia's lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, who's next in line to be governor, has been accused of sexual assault. Uh, this came out on Sunday, and Justin Fairfax forcefully denied the claim since then. What's your response to that allegation? The allegation is completely false, uh, as was indicated uh, in our statement. And uh, if you read through the story, you'll see it's uh, completely uncorroborated. Uh, and what we know is that it's false uh, and defamatory. The woman who accused him has since gone public and agreed to put her name to it. Her name is Vanessa Tyson. She's a California professor, and she says that Justin Fairfax forced her to perform oral sex on him when they met at the 2004 Democratic National Convention in Boston. She first came to the Washington Post about this uh, shortly after Fairfax's election in 2017. We opted not to write a story as we reported because we weren't able to corroborate the evidence or either side's claim of what happened in the hotel room at that convention, and we weren't able to find similar misconduct claims against uh, Justin Fairfax. But the fact that this woman has now come out publicly to make this accusation is pretty bad for him. It's out there now. Justin Fairfax has to defend himself uh, from it. A lot of uh, the same lawmakers who called on uh, Ralph Northam to resign had to figure out how to respond to this one, too. We haven't seen a similar cascade of calls for resignation, but a lot of people are torn over their desire to believe survivors and to believe uh, women who come forward, especially after Vanessa Tyson released a lengthy and harrowing statement about what she went through. Unlike others, I have nothing to hide. I mean, you have someone who um, you know, obviously wanted to manipulate the press, obviously wanted attention uh, on this, and that this is a complete uh, smear. So at this point, there's a very real possibility that both the governor and lieutenant governor of Virginia may end up having to resign. And then we get to the next person in the line of secession, which is the attorney general of Virginia. Yes. So the third person is Attorney General Mark Herring. And on Wednesday, he acknowledged that he put on blackface when he was in college, too. He just was like, I just need to get this out there before we make any decisions about who's going to be leaving and who's going to be staying. But the interesting thing is Mark Herring called for Ralph Northam resign on Saturday. So after when everyone else was calling for Ralph Northam resign over his blackface incident, Mark Herring called on Northam to resign, too. He said he was no longer able to lead. And now Mark Herring acknowledged that he put on blackface and he hasn't addressed the question of, well, why was it a resignable offense when Ralph Northam did it, but not a resignable offense for you? And so if for some reason all three of these Democratic leaders of Virginia were to be kicked out of office or to resign, what would happen after that? So the fourth person in line to the governorship is the Speaker of the House of Delegates, and that's a Republican, Kirk Cox of Colonial Heights. And there's an interesting backstory there, too, because the reason uh, Kirk Cox is Speaker right now is the election results for the House of Delegates in 2017 came down to a dead tie. And there was one unresolved race that was going to determine control of the House of Delegates. And that race was a tie. Both candidates received the exact same number of votes. And it literally came down to a name being pulled out of a ceramic bowl. 
And the reason that Republicans have a majority of the House of Delegates was pure luck and pure chance when the name of the Republican was uh, drawn out of the bowl and that gave them the 51 to 49 majority. So essentially, this Republican who is now fourth in line to becoming leader of Virginia, the reason that he's there, the reason that Republicans have power in the first place is because of a name that got picked out of a bowl? That's right. And I should say, too, not a lot of people think that that's going to happen, that Democrats are going to allow all three of their office holders to resign and let a Republican uh, take control. There's a lot of different permeations of how this could play out, whether it's lieutenant governor resign first and governor appoint a new lieutenant uh, governor. I mean, there are a lot of complexities uh, here, and, and the dynamics have shifted so much in the past few days. So the fact that all three of these leaders are mired in conflict at this point it seems like almost a brewing crisis. That's it's crisis is a good way to describe it. And what's happening in Richmond right now is there's almost this paralysis where you have all these people who could understand what happened with Ralph Northam and just hope that it would all end if Ralph Northam just stepped down and resigned. But it's gotten a lot more complicated now that you have sexual assault allegations against your lieutenant governor and your attorney general also admitting to using blackface. So you have a crisis where, especially in a Party where women and African-Americans are a key part of their base, you have scandals relating to race and gender enveloping your three statewide elected officials. And this is coming at a really precarious time for Democrats because for the last few years, they've been held up as a model of how a previously conservative state can turn blue. The fact that their legislature has become increasingly Democratic in the last few years. The fact that they elected a Democratic governor the year after President Trump was elected, that those were a symbol of Democratic progress in the country. Right. The success for Virginia in 2017 came down to two things. They were able to persuade a moderate voters, especially in the suburbs, to vote for the Democrats, especially moderates who were turned off by uh, President Trump in the direction of the Republican Party. And they were able to activate voters of color who turned out in high numbers in favor of the Democrats and elected a historically diverse group of candidates. The Democrats want to be a party that's progressive on race, that's progressive on gender, that believes and listens to women. But you're in this situation now where Democrats are trying to figure out where do we draw the line? Like, are the things that people did decades ago, can we forgive them? Should we consider what they've done once they were in public office on issues of race and gender? Should that count in their favor? These are complicated and difficult discussions that are happening across the Commonwealth of Virginia and across the country as people are trying to figure out what's acceptable and what's not from their public officials. Bennett Nierapil covers local politics for The Post. The savage gang, MS-13, now operates in at least 20 different American states, and they almost all come through our southern border. At the State of the Union, President Trump raised the issue of MS-13, the Salvadoran gang that's been a prominent crime fixture in the U.S. since the 90s. And for Michael Miller, who reports on MS-13 for The Post, that part of the speech didn't come as much of a shock. Well, he, uh, unsurprisingly, he mentioned the gang, uh, which by my count at least is, I think, the 161st time that he's brought it up since he came to office. And it's really this touchstone that he comes back to again and again. Just yesterday, an MS-13 gang member 
was taken into custody for a fatal shooting on a subway platform in New York City. You mentioned this MS-13 murder that happened on Sunday in Queens, which is, of course is his hometown. In that incident, a gang fight at a subway station ended up with someone shot and killed. The murder was caught on video by a bystander. Police arrested a 26-year-old who they believed to be an MS-13 gang member. And two days later, the president was talking about it. We are removing these gang members by the thousands. But until we secure our border, they're going to keep streaming right back in. And Michael says that the president has a very compelling reason to keep focusing on MS-13, even if what he's saying doesn't exactly square with what's happening on the ground. I think for the president, the gang embodies his worst fears about undocumented immigrants and illegal immigration. They commit these kind of spectacular murders that really kind of play into Americans' worst fears about people who might be coming over the border. Many of these gang members took advantage of glaring loopholes in our laws to enter the country as illegal, unaccompanied, alien minors. Obviously, we should point out that statistically, immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than people born in the United States. But at the same time, the gang does commit these murders and they draw a lot of attention because they're so spectacularly violent. And so in that way, uh, the president often points to it as kind of the what he is seeking to keep out by building a border wall. In making this connection between the benefits of building a border wall and the risks of MS-13, he also really paints this picture that MS-13 is growing and that it's a bigger problem than it has ever been. Does that square with reality? Well, authorities tell me that the number of gang members is pretty constant. Um, so it's still at about 10,000 uh, nationwide. But it is true that there was an uptick in MS-13 violence that started in around 2013, 2014, and then really kind of peaked in 2016 and 2017. Really, my reporting has shown talking to local law enforcement and federal law enforcement and also experts that last year, that number really dropped off. So why is there such a steep drop-off in, in the number of MS-13 murders? Well, local authorities say that basically this is kind of a cyclical thing where the gang will become more violent, authorities will become aware of it, they'll really take aggressive efforts to crack down on it, uh, mostly on a local level, and they will solve those crimes, put people behind bars, and then the gang violence will kind of dip or come to a lull. So, you know, the, the president likes to say that he's deporting and arresting MS-13 members in record numbers, which isn't quite true. But also local authorities will say that really this is kind of part of a pattern that they've seen play out for decades now. So in the last couple of years, as we've seen the number of murders start to drop off, what have the efforts from state and local law enforcement agencies look like that actually resulted in this crackdown on MS-13? Sure. So... Really what it looks like is, in some cases, uh, ICE, HSI, Homeland Security Investigations, they do, uh, they have increased the number of MS-13 gang member arrests that they've made in recent years. But most of these cases are being built by local law enforcement, often with the help of the FBI, and then they're brought uh, federal. So we see these big federal indictments, uh, what they call RICO indictments, racketeering indictments, that really take several years to build. And then they take down entire cliques or uh, 
groups of MS-13. These cases constitute the largest crackdown of MS-13 ever conducted in Los Angeles. Most of the defendants, if convicted, will face decades in federal prison where there is no parole, and the three of the defendants are eligible for the death penalty. So we've definitely seen that in the D.C. area, um, also in Long Island. In Long Island, there were, I believe, uh, according to police there, there were 17 MS-13 murders in 2016 through April of 2017. So you have basically one per month there, and it really kind of terrorized uh, the community. That's in Suffolk County, Long Island. And then um, the local authorities, the police there, with the help of ICE and uh, the feds, they really went after one particular clique that was responsible, and they haven't had a single MS-13 murder since April 2017. When you look at the incidents, uh, the fact that they're down, they are very uncomfortable here in Suffolk County, which is a good thing. You know, they point to that as a real success story, and we're seeing that play out around the country, including here in D.C., So if law enforcement agencies are getting better at being able to root out MS-13 and and prevent some of these murders, why isn't that something that President Trump is, you know, bragging about, the fact that this is a problem that we're starting to get a hold of? It's a a crucial question that I've been looking at because you would think that the president would want to dive into these numbers. He would want to point out just how drastically MS-13 murders, you know, fell last year. But that could undermine his argument for a wall. It could also kind of undermine uh, this argument that he makes kind of conflating undocumented immigrants with crime. And so what we see is that he doesn't tend to really wade into the numbers. He doesn't get specific. Instead, he kind of points to anecdotes of MS-13 violence, like this killing in Queens a couple days ago, or a couple of cases in the D.C. region that he kind of refers to again and again and again that we've reported on for the Washington Post. But you know, as I said, we've really seen a sharp decline in terms of MS-13 murders last year in the Washington region. So that's gone down from over 30 in 2016 and 17 combined to about four last year by our estimates. What do local law enforcement agencies say about the fact that the reality of their success kind of runs counter to what the president is talking about? They honestly walk a pretty fine line because they don't want to incur the wrath of the president. They don't want to kind of wade into politics. Some law enforcement does tell me that that the president's rhetoric gets in the way of what they're trying to do. So, you know, I was speaking to the police commissioner in Suffolk County, Long Island. Again, this is a place that has had 17 murders in just about as many months uh, going back to 2017, but it's really dropped off. And so, you know, she said that on the one hand, the president's rhetoric talking about MS-13 has helped drive funds to them. I think they got a half million dollar grant to help go after MS-13. But at the same time, she worried that this rhetoric and the way that the president kind of conflates undocumented immigrants and crime and and paints so broadly immigrants as possible MS-13 members, that uh, it could lead people to not come forward and not report crimes and not cooperate. So in that sense, there is a risk that this type of rhetoric will really kind of backfire. Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah, thank you. Michael Miller is a reporter for The Post. This week, the Unicode Consortium is announcing the release of 230 new emoji. 
The new icons include animals like flamingos and otters. There are objects like snorkels and saris and waffles. And there are new emoji that are more inclusive, like people who use wheelchairs and people who use canes and people who fall outside the traditional gender binary. But the idea for these new emoji don't actually start with Unicode. Today, a story from post-animator Colin Pope on where exactly new emoji come from and how, it turns out, any of us can officially propose one. I think if you were to ask the Unicode committee, does yoga deserve an emoji? Probably they'd say yes, but you still need to go through these hoops. And for the person meditating emoji, the guy jumping through all these hoops is audio producer Mark Bramhill. The biggest hoop is a written proposal, proving there's demand for your emoji and that it hits Unicode's list of criteria. For example, it can't be overly specific. Sushi's a good emoji that exists. If you were like, oh, I want a salmon row emoji, that's too narrow. It has to have multiple uses. They want to know, is this something that can be used non-literally? It can't overlap with existing emojis. They want something that's going to break new ground. Not all the breeds of dogs. No logos, brands, or real people. They're constantly getting Batman and Starbucks. Those aren't going to happen. It can't be a fad. And for something that has been around for millennia, it is pretty safe to say it is not a fad. Mark finishes up and sends his proposal to Unicode's Emoji Subcommittee. They do the first screening. A week later, I got an email saying, we have decided to forward this on to the Unicode Technical Committee. I was just elated and then also kind of terrified that, oh, now it has to pass muster with the big leagues. At this point, most folks are done and just wait to hear the decision. But a rare few emoji hopefuls take the option to go argue their case in person. How do you say no to that? So when I got that email, it also meant, all right, I'm going to San Francisco. So it was November 7th, 2016. I went in front of Unicode. And honestly, I was just like a nervous mess. Before getting in my ride to go to this meeting, it was just like, I might as well practice one more time. So I turned on my recorder. Okay, I'm really nervous. Uh... So my proposed emoji is for person meditating. Uh, this would be a, a single emoji that... It was rough. Um, I kept, like, forgetting meditation, basic words. Yoga. You know, maybe that would have been a good time to be meditating. At the meeting, Mark steps into a room packed with engineers. He takes a deep breath, checks his notes. And then just like, all right, give your pitch. And I think this would fill an important gap in the current Unicode standard. Thank you. Any questions? How do you think you did? There was some nodding of heads during my speech, but, you know, at the end it was like, okay, we'll need you to leave. And uh, they took a secret vote as to whether or not to make this an emoji. Any emoji that does get approved has one last step, a graduation of sorts. Each company, Apple, Google, Twitter, has to draw their own version of it. But Unicode doesn't really say what it should look like. For the dancer, it doesn't tell you what kind of dance they're doing. It doesn't say if it's a man or a woman. So each company has to interpret it in their own style. And when it's ready, release it into the wild with a software update. And so a few days go by, you know, still hadn't heard anything. Another day passes. And another. Until later that week, when Mark was scrolling through Twitter. And 
I saw a thing about the new emojis that were approved. Looking around, seeing like, okay, they've got a woman in a hijab, the hedgehog emoji, a man with a beard. And finally, I lower on the page, person in lotus position. I did it. I'd made it. I had created an emoji. What was the first thing you did after you found out that it had made it? I think I called my mom. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've been seeing people tweeting like, oh my gosh, finally a yoga emoji. This is the only emoji I've wanted. My face just lit up. When Mark first started his emoji, there wasn't a lot of guidance. But if you look at Unicode's site now, there are some good examples to follow. Suggestions on pitfalls to avoid. And right in the middle, you'll notice an immaculately typeset, extremely enthusiastic, very well-written sample proposal titled Person Meditating. Colin Pope is an animation storyteller at The Post. You can get a link to the full animated version of Colin's story over at postreports.com. That's it for today's show. You can learn more about the stories in the episode at postreports.com. Join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>